This episode of the Round 6 Podcast is brought to you by Trailer Tug, the world's strongest trailer dolly. Learn more at TrailerTug.com. Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast, a weekly roundtable discussion featuring a variety of automotive subjects, interviews, special guests, and stories. Hosted by the Round 6 Gearheads, Brian Stubsky, Alex Welsh, and Brad King. Here on episode 62, the Gearheads are joined by special co-host Carson Lev as they head down to Australia and visit with Ziggy Sadler of Ziggy's Design Driven. Welcome to the Round 6 Podcast. I'm Brian. I'm Brad. I'm Alex. I'm Carson. I'm Ziggy. There, man. Hey. We, it's a full house tonight, Perfect. man. If if ever there was a, a full house just full of, uh, well, great people, plus me, this is it. <laughs> this is where you guys want to be tonight. Man, we are sitting down tonight, a uh, very super awesome special guest uh, from the bottom of the world, or top of the world, depending on, well which way you're looking at your flat earth, uh, Mr. Ziggy Sadler uh, of Ziggy Design Driven. Welcome, man. Thank you very much. Really appreciate it. Thank you for joining us. And, and, and with us also is our, our good friend and, well, I, I should say sometimes co-host now, Mr. Carson Lev. How's everybody doing? This is fun. I, I was looking forward to this one. I look forward to all of them. I was really looking forward to this one. <laughs> this is going to be so good. I, I really, I just kind of want to sit back and let you guys all just do your thing. I, here we are. It's a weird thing. It well for us here, it is Saturday night, and for you, Ziggy, it is what Thursday afternoon <laughs> <laughs> of last week. <laughs> now, how far in the future are you? <laughs> What's going to happen we're, tomorrow? Take we're always in the now. future. Yeah. That's right. You're, you're ahead in the future, so uh, I need to get with you later on on some sports scores. Yeah. Yes. It's <laughs> back to the future. <laughs> He's got the magic book. <laughs> oh, my God. So how are things down? I don't want to say down. Inscripted. How are things in Australia, sir? Things in Australia are wonderful. Um, it's it's an interesting growing market at the moment where we're really expanding a lot in um, like the professional builders, um, the shops, the availability of parts, um, the, the growth of, you know, retro mod, um, you know, is alive and well. Um, you know, Seam is paying attention to us um, in Australia now and spending a lot of time with us, which I'm directly involved in, um, which is also helping, um, you know, get the message out there and working with companies manufacturers and designers and stuff so that we can you know move this whole gamut forward that is so and to just say awesome is really kind of underselling it i mean the the passion that comes out of the australian market is it's mind-boggling for me and Mm -hmm. one of the things we talk about a lot on the podcast here is how you get kind of jaded after a while so like for us i mean there's some things and i feel bad it's not that we're above anything it's just you're surrounded by so much going on here. You're just kind of like, meh, another cool car. Oh, there's another million-dollar build. That's pretty cool. And to watch what you guys do down there, it is nonstop. Like, it's it's like voracious passion. I mean, God, it, there, there's never a post 
from anyone in Australia that just kind of goes, yeah, well, I took the car off today. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, I think that's the, the we're very much the same, um, I suppose, cultured folks, but we have a different twist to the way we look at things generally. Um, me personally, I'm, I'm kind of like a bit of an outsider um, on the general culture of the, you know, the big mountain engine burnout style cars, etc. But, um, you know, I, I, unfortunately, that's the, the genre that, you know, is the, the, the mass market here. And, um, you know, I'd like to see more autocross, etc. happening in Australia. But, but the same token, we have a very, very, very unique flavour of, of builds. And, um, and I think that's what turns the screws to Americans and Europeans, etc. is that um, we do have a different take on the world, which makes it a bit fresh. And, you know, Troy, Trepani, when he's come out here, you know, other visitors that have come out here, um, you know, John Kosmoski, whatever, you know, they all get turned on by the fact that it's just something fresh and new. And then they also get very confused why we keep, you know, picking on four-doored vehicles too. <laughs> <laughs> we were just talking about that the other day. And it's where for years over here, a four-door car was something everybody turned their nose up at. I mean, unless it was, you know, given to you by your aunt or something like that. If somebody came like, hey, this is going to be your first car. You're like, sweet. But, you know, you'd never see somebody go out and pick up something like, oh, I'm going to do a 70 Nova. And, you know, you get one picture in your head and you show up and then it's a four-door. <laughs> yes. And that's the problem, you know, like we, we like our Commodore platform, um, which is essentially based on the Opal, um, you know, is, is a, a huge single market here. And just recently at the Motor X show in, in Melbourne that uh, was part of the, the SEMA Australia um, for the American uh, manufacturing companies coming and visiting, you know, they're going, what? What the hell is going on with all these four-door vehicles, <laughs> right? And then, and then it was also trying to make them understand. You know, they're they're trying to sell suspension packages and stuff. We've got shallower floors, so you know some of the things are, you know, you're trying to, you know, my role as part of the SEMA thing is to you know try and fill in the gaps for them a bit. To if you want to parallel brand, sorry, parallel um, sell a product to work on a local design car like a Commodore or a Falcon or whatever um, you know we've got different floor pan structures sometimes to deal with and we don't have the depth of room that you'd have in a in a mid 60s Chevy or whatever so it's a whole different approach as to what might work and what mightn't work and then also our you know ours are probably more mid-sized cars so you know the whips and the tracks and stuff you know start to create big challenges in doing retro mod stuff so but yeah that's the four-door thing gets just froze them every year it's just like they're dumbfounded by it well i will say this though if you're in the billet hinge market man that that is primed to explode because oh yeah unfortunately one that... set you'd be like i'm gonna sell four sets of hinges and i'm sorry i'm gonna I'm just trying to give an idea for someone. Oh, wow. <laughs> yeah, and, that, and that's the problem too. Like, you know, that everything compounds in price like that. That uh, there's a, a shop here that's been manufacturing, well, started manufacturing some billet um, uh, door hinges for a um, uh, early, late, late 60s, early 70s car. But, you know, because you've got four doors, it's a very expensive purchase. Like, you know, you can end up spending like, you know, three and four thousand dollars on hinges. 
And, you know, to most people that goes, well, holy dooly, that's just really blowing that out of the water. Um, and that's the list little things that people don't comprehend how it can compound the problem. And even down to having, you know, interior trims like a resto mod, um, muscle car in America, you know, so many of them don't even bother with back seats anymore. And, you know, they'll panel it in and, you know, it was probably, you know, Brock Moore and the like that sort of started pioneering doing that sort of direction to make some fun of the rear, you know, seat area and, and voiding it so they can put suspensions and stuff in it. But, you know, we've got to trim whole cars with back seats and back door trims, etc. So, you know, even the cost of a trim job starts to compound it as well. Yeah, so we gotta we gotta start shipping you guys over some two doors. Oh yeah, please. You know, as many as you could find. <laughs> but we're not gonna tell you what we're gonna ship you. We're gonna ship you a bunch of Oldsmobile Achivas from like the early nineties. But they'll they would be two doors though. So. Yeah. And see the other problem we got uh, more recently, you know, and this is you know, things that I suppose Americans don't understand the things we have to deal with. That more recently to bring um, you know, a, a, an early American car into Australia. If um, you cannot guarantee that there was never any asbestos used in that vehicle, we have to have the asbestos removed before we can bring it into the country. Oh. Wow. wow. So all, all your old brakes, all your clutches, all your head gaskets, like all that stuff. So you buy a matching numbered, you know, pristine car, uh, it becomes a huge problem. Now, Ziggy, were you guys also slapped with import tariffs on things that came in, automotive and performance products the way Latin America and South America was? Yeah, so we... Because we... that's also an impediment to bringing stuff in. And, and, oh, yeah. And even well, see, before like, you... Go ahead. Yeah, even at the moment, it's... um, What do we add? About 69 cents in the dollar, so... Right. You know, it's, it's dollar offset. Like, yeah, so it's just... 30% there and then some sales tax and some duties and stuff, you know, you can add 40 or 50% easily right. to anything that you purchase in the U S right. so you're paying half um, again as much And the interesting yeah. thing that we observe, I mean, you know, with, with ship and I, when we travel is that in, in specifically in Australia and Latin America, South America is their skill set, Their working skills are literally at the top notch level of NASCAR and NHRI teams. So I mean, you look at their welds, you look at their panel work, you look at their fitment, you look at the work that they do, um, it, it's, I mean, no disrespect to our U.S. manufacturers and our U.S. customizers, but over there, it's phenomenal detail and skill set with down to details because they can't buy parts and bring them in, so they've got to make them. Uh, That's and right. That, and that, that to me, shows that vocational aspect of our industry that really shows some real promise for us because the stuff they build there is phenomenal. The other thing mm -hmm. that we see between Latin America and compared to Australia also is the incredible passion. There are people there who know more about our history, drag racing, NASCAR, all kinds of stuff, more than U.S. guys know and guys that are in the business. They seem to have a deeper appreciation um, and an understanding. I mean, they're building cars, and, and we'll, uh, you know the car I'm going to talk about in a little bit is that Jocko Streamliner. Um, <laughs> that just one of my all-time favorite guys, favorite story. He was a very odd guy and kind of hard to deal with like a lot of these guys in drag racing were. But um, that car was, you know, very controversial at the time between him and Garlitz. But the detail on what you guys did on that car, when you look at the pictures of that, my gosh, it's like phenomenal. So, I mean, do you see that in general that because of the high import tariffs, so basically you guys got to build your own stuff? You can, you figure out a way to work with what you've got? Yeah, well, I mean, essentially there's there's two camps. And, and the interesting part, like at the moment, is um, – so you got all the resto mods, all your you know your muscle cars, etc. But you know tariffs, duties, um, 
you know, EPA problems, et cetera, are pushing the prices of those higher. The benefit those cars have is that all the repo components you can buy makes, you know, repairing and fixing those cars, you know, more affordable. But more recently, which was, you know, probably the last possibly two years, there's been this big push with what we call our local platforms, our local manufactured Falcons and, and Holdens. Because Holden and Ford have shut down now, and mm -hmm. you know most of the people that are spending the money are in that you know mid thirties, mid forties age group, that they still want that snapshot. They've been imprinted with those cars in the driveway, but now that the you know that the, the manufacturing has gone away, they want to almost save all of these vehicles that have you know essentially we used to use for landfill, yeah, um, because there's because there's always going to be another one. But right. now there isn't going to be another one, and you know there's been quite a fight um, in the marketplace with, you know, Holden trying to sell a, you know, a, a, um, an Opal that's got a Commodore badge on it. Right. Well, the, lo the locals aren't taking that. They're just not. They're not wearing that at all. And we had um, like HSV Holden Special Vehicles that, you know, has this huge following, um, and and they're not really offering much more than you know a converted. Camaro now, so so everyone's sort of almost running back to the beginning of the Commodores, and and they're becoming quite sought after, and they're even the collectible ones are, are getting you know you know almost lotto numbers. So they're deciding, hey, you know, I'm going to retro mod mm -hmm. an early Commodore into a early four door Commodore into something that's my special vehicle, and um, and putting light model suspensions, and and because LSs are you know, you've got to put LS in everything um, <laughs> uh, because LSs are so easy swaps. You know, that's that's really pushing the local market, but that's also making them more affordable to build too. So I, I see that part. It's probably going to be an expansion part of the market over the next probably 10 years. It's funny because that mirrors a lot of what happens in the United States when the Corvette went through the mid-90s and early 2000s, really wasn't advancing further. And because of all kinds of regulations, people went back to older Corvettes. So if you don't know where your future is going, you celebrate the past. That's right. And it's like where it is at the moment, you know, like my, my um, uh, I suppose, aptitude to wear the whole direction and stuff is happening around the world is anything that seems to be the first of a mark or first mm -hmm. of a model is what people are celebrating and they want a snapshot of that. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the, the further we get into this, into this, um, into the 2000s, the more people want a snapshot of the past. So, and, and regulations on, you know, later model vehicles having modifications in Australia is becoming harder and harder. Um, and that's probably our single biggest problem in Australia is trying to get around the legislation of being able to register, you know, modified vehicles, et cetera, because yes. we don't, we, we can't do a, we can't get a roadster shop chassis and, or a Morrison chassis or whatever, and throw it under a car. We're not allowed to do that. As far as the, the, um, the powers to be are concerned, that's, that's a new car because it's a new frame. So it's got to comply with you know current design standards, right. current emissions, etc. Right. So and then there's, there's there's a few ways around it, like the hot rod market. You know, if it's pre forty eight, we've got a national code for rego for them, so you can use a repo frame and stuff. But there's still limitations to it. But it's like the hoops we have to jump through trying to build these cars and probably build good design into them. You know, the, the more better design we try and build into them and make them safer, um, the harder it is, which you know is really not helping you know, reflecting back to the whole SEMA thing, you know, we're, we're trying to build on expanding it into the, 
into the aftermarket and the aftermarket is is ideally our savior to um to replace you know the the capital that was being made by locally manufacturing cars in australia you know all of us you know builders and fabricators and modifiers you know we're here to take up some of that slack if you know we can get better legislation you know freedoms so that we can do you know repo frames and that's why we keep bringing in those aftermarket frames from from the us um, because it is affordable um, to buy that if you can find a way of registering them but because you can't register no one here you know we've got some really good fabricators that could go to market with with you know repo frames and repo components mm -hmm. but there's not there's not enough depth for them to put some some decent investment into actually right. bringing a good product to the market so right. it's just catch-22 scenario in, in Latin America, South America, the same issue it, pr it prevails, and it's really based on registration and uh, insurance. And, yeah. and like, specifically in Brazil, you cannot register or insure a car that's older than 14 years old. So if you drive it on the road, you have to have your own specialty registration, and you have to have your own bond on that car. So you don't use oh. insurance. You have a bond. But yet it's funny, 12 o'clock at night when the streets are empty, all these Yenko Camaros come out and Z28 Camaros. <laughs> they're, like, where, they're like, where the hell are these things hiding during the day? And at night they come out when the streets are empty and they get together in gas stations and they meet and they talk. And, and there's some legislative action taking down there too. Unfortunately, their political environment is a little less, you know, stable than probably, you know, Australia, United States. And, but it is an interesting thing where you're kind of going through what the United States went through a few years ago. And luckily, SEMA has led the charge on that. So it's great to see what you're doing specifically and individually with SEMA and SEMA in general. I'm I'm stoked to hear you're involved in that. The whole SEMA thing, you know, that SEMA's kind of working some in some areas too, working in the back door. So um, part of the role that we have is um, there's a gentleman by the name of Duncan Archibald. So he's an Australian that works for the uh, US consulate in Sydney. So when a company wants to bring a product to Australia, he's there to, you know, to, to help them navigate how to get it here, what legislation they've got to bump, jump through, et cetera. And then also too, you know, the, the amount of registrations um, on you know, vehicles, et cetera. And like more recently, um, you know, you'd have your, your, your truck or four by four manufacturers in the US would think, oh, you know, we sell a whole heap of these parts for XYZ in in America so we're going to sell the same thing into Australia well they came here and it's like what are all of these Ford Rangers we haven't even seen them before yeah so and like literally you know 50% of the trucks sold are Ford Rangers so all of a sudden you know SEMA thankfully bought you know a couple of vehicles took them back to to uh, SEMA garage so that they had something to measure so now these American companies are manufacturing components for our local content, you know, Thailand-made um, ranges, which is great because it's creating an export for America, creating more, I suppose, in some ways, creating more um, competition locally. Um, and then there's also, too, now that America's getting the same range, well, now there's manufacturers that are doing components for the local market that are now have an export product here in America. Right. So the whole SEMA involvement thing is is really helping, you know, connect the dots for a lot of people right. on both both sides of the markets. Um, but it also is allowing us probably um, more numbers to to fight legislation because we've got, to some degree, American manufacturers via you know the the U.S. consulate uh, and the Trade Commission saying, well, these American companies are spending all this money in tax. Why are you making it hard? Do you want tax money or not? Whereas in Australia, 
for, for us to be trying to sell the part, it's kind of like you're too far removed from the from the the right people to be pushing the right buttons. So when it becomes a, a bureaucratic thing, um, you know, via US Trade Commission, that's when you've got a little bit more power. And then of course the other thing is the the whole, you know, Chinese um you know, rip-off market type thing too that, you know, that's, which is rife in America and it's rife in here. And that's where I found it was really interesting that a lot of the visiting manufacturers are also visiting manufacturers that go to the to SEMA China um, expos. And, you know, like Boostane sells a huge amount of Boostane into China and, and it's a good market for them. Whereas you think, you know, straight away that, you know, you're almost hand-feeding them something to, to take away. But, you know, it's about... You know, SEMA working with those companies to help protect their IP as well. Yeah, and the IP issue is really a, a big struggle in the international market because there's different standards across the world. So it's, a, it's one of the basis of our business and what we do. And we start working with international contracts. You can write all the protection words in the world, but if they don't have a standard within their own nation and they don't support it, you know, and, and you know, many times when you work with international companies, they demand that you transfer the IP to them before they manufacture. So then you give up any and all strategic advantage. So yeah, it's a problem. Exactly. So it's a huge problem. But back to, um, if you want to chat about the, uh, the Jocko Streamliner. Yes. Yeah. Sorry. Sorry, guys. I'm hijacking this. One. <laughs> no, it's good. It's all good, dude. You're doing great. I mean, that car, I'll just tell you, that car is a kid. I watched that run on the, on the West Coast. Um, I knew Jocko for some family friends and, um, and it was cool when I was at Hot Wheels. There were certain cars when I went to Hot Wheels that were on my list. When I walked in the door from I, I transferred the Disney Entertainment Division at Mattel over to Mattel Hot Wheels. I mean, I had a, a list in my back pocket, and that was probably number one or number two. Um, and it was cool. We put it in a two-car set with the Rapparossi Montanello car, the Purple Gang car. And the cool thing was the, the, the Montanellos and, and Jocko were, were, were and, and the Rossis were great friends. And it was cool that car was done. But that car... Can you go through the brief history of that car, how it ended up in Australia, and then what you've got and what you've done? I mean, I just love the story. <laughs> well, okay. So starting at the beginning, um, Norm Longfield owns the car. He, um, he's he been a you know a long-term customer of mine for probably, I don't know, 30, 35 years, even before I had a business and I was, I was, uh, I was a national training um, manager and and uh, demonstrator for Dupont Paints way back then. Oh, um, nice. And uh, so that's my background. I kind of got out of the corporate world by accident. <laughs> um, <laughs> so so anyway, what happened? He I did a Willie's Coupe for him, which is a pink and white Willie's Coupe that he was building, and um, he just finished that. And he said, "Oh, I'm going to build a a um, a funny car that I can register and drive on the street." If, if you know, I can, I can flick you guys some photos of the stuff that Norm builds. He's just, he's just a wild man. Anyway, he, um, he was going to do this funny car thing, and he was going to put a custom body on it. Then he's going to put a Mustang body on it. He was going to have it so he could change the body to suit, you know, whatever show he was going to. And he's a real showman. Like he does, you know, really puts on a, a good piece of entertainment in the build of a car. So anyway, that was like frightening the daylights out of me and that I had to paint something like that. So anyway, about a couple of months goes past and he says, oh, I've bought something else. It'll be here soon. So still didn't tell me what it was. Anyway, I rocked into his, into his garage and here it was. It was the, so I believe the story goes that there was three 
of the Jocko Streamliner bodies that were done after the very first one was built. Mm-hmm. And the, fir- the first one got destroyed um, like three-quarter track, in, I think, in 1959. They first yes. started. Yep. He built it in 58 and it got destroyed in 59. That's when then, uh, Jim Nelson was driving it. That's right, yeah. And um, so when they did the second body, what they learned from the second body was um, – because we know pretty new at fiberglass back then, and the reason the body fell apart, according to to Jocko, was that it just basically delaminated and just self-destruct from the the downforce they were getting pushed on the car. So, um, and and I don't know whether it's true or not, but according to Jocko, it was his instigation that really put you know the engine behind you to utilise you know this this idea he had of having this streamlined body over essentially a dragster. Um, mm-hmm. And then also putting the engine behind you so that you had uh, the room at the front to get downforce right. and you also had the height at the back to to use it for what its purpose was, which was an aeroplane being upside down. So anyway, Norm um, heard about this, this car that was one of the bodies, one of the three bodies, and it was on display in, I think it's called... Um, Motor City McDonald's. It's got a, a big, um, like big display window in the front of it, and this thing was on display, and it was done up with the the, the same old scallops, etc., as the first one, but uh, it had different other bits and pieces. But it was never really finished. Anyway, they they rolled it in there just to put it on display for this this period of week. And a friend of Norm's rang him and said, I found the car for you. So Norm bought this car, sight unseen, oh my from, gosh. A photo, from a photo sitting in this display window at McDonald's in Chicago. <laughs> so so he didn't know what he was going to get. It turned up and it was, you know, it was pretty crude. And the outside of the body was kind of like, you know how you're – a worn out surfboard just has all the footprints all over it and it's all distorted. Mm-hmm. And well, the whole body was like that. All the compression things. Yeah. Yeah. So, and part of it was from when they <clears throat> were manufacturing it, they were just basically um, using foam as a, as a, you know, almost a core mat uh, foam all the way between it. And they laminated the backside and the top side and then just, you know, bonded it, et cetera. So, it wasn't a really good thing to start with and and norm really didn't want to get involved in getting too crazy with repairing the body because i wanted to completely reskin the whole body so we did that up as a hot rodded version of it which was called the extreme liner mm-hmm. and you know put the hemi in it and you know got the whole thing passed and he was racing it etc and had a great time with it and then over that period um then won a lot of car shows you know took it to drag events, etc. It wasn't overly fast. It got a bit scary at about 100 and um, I think it was about 165, 170. It, it, it kind of got a bit light in the front. So he was just backing off and just enjoying the car for what it was. And he was always going to put like, you know, aerofoils at the front and play around with it. And then unfortunately, the drag strip in, in Sydney shut down at this period of time. So there's nowhere for him to play. And he got a phone call from a, from a country air show that wanted to do a demonstration, racing a plane, a fighter plane, um, as a demonstration. And Norm's going, yeah, shit, I'm there. That's, that's like a, lot of, a lot of fun. So he takes it out and he does the run and you're just kind of starting to beat the plane. And the theory is that between the downforce that, you know, his 
streamline the, you know, with being the aeroplane wing upside down, getting down force, and right next to it, the plane having all this lift, generated this scope of air that basically got under the front of it, mm-hmm. and picked the picked the body up and flipped it uh, six times. Wow. And and of course, mm-hmm. like like would only happen in something that's rare, like it is, that. The body came off the chassis straight away because it's just got four pins that retain it. So the body flicks off and gets out of the way. The chassis, if normally it curls over um, six times, and when it finishes doing its last little tumble, it finds the body and falls on top of it. <laughs> so oh. destroying, oh. destroying the body to the point that what I got was a, a small box trailer and a bunch of parts. Oh, so. So Norm repaired all the chassis and body and all that sort of stuff. Uh, sorry, the chassis and all the componentry, got it re-spec'd, and then I used that as my jig to just basically piece the body together. But there's probably only 20, maybe 25% of the original body there. But mm-hmm. we reverse engineered it by completely piecing it together, resurfacing the whole car, re-glassing over the outside of it and then basically coming on the inside, grinding away a lot of the original body, um, relaying the inside, but it was all just cormat now rather than foam, and then making whole, whole new divisions and everything else for it. And then, um, <clears throat> pardon me, and, and uh, there's a bunch of photos of the wreck and all that stuff on our Facebook page, etc. Right. But But then when the time came to paint it, uh, I said to Norm, really, you know, if you're not going to race this because you're scared about hurting it again, if you're not going to race this and it's just going to be a crackle-fest car, how about we do it as a salute to the very first car yes. that got destroyed? Yeah. So, so by doing that, we, um, I then got the, the uh, article out of, think, I think it was Carcraft. It was on the front cover of Carcraft, I think. Mm-hmm. Um and had to blow it up to one-to-one and we went in and actually picked out all the original fonts and stuff because it was just brush fonts there was no um you know direct fonts that i could use and we really wanted to be as accurate as possible so we blew it up one-to-one and you know basically copied the the color scheme as best as we could but then me because you know my dna is really screwed up i decided that we had to make it you know more detailed than the original car was but be you know, true to the form. So that's yeah. why we put the scallops, the red pin lines, yeah. we track the pin line all around the arches, around the back, around the tail of it. Um, yeah, but yours, clear, yours really is a tribute. I mean, it's 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 that original yeah. car, but the details you've done are a tribute to Jocko and the way that car was built. Yeah, like, and, and even down to, you know, putting Jazzy on the roof of the mm-hmm. cab and, you yeah. know, all of that stuff. And that's where, you know, we really – would love to somewhere along the lines get an invite to to Pebble Beach or something because I think it would be great to yeah, for it work, to be seen. Yeah, I'm, I'm already made some calls. I'm working on that. Oh, thank you. Right <laughs> and, and I and I love it because I mean Jocko was a he he was a character. We had a lot of these guys back in racing, and allegedly he got this idea for the streamliner during one of his many trips out to the desert. And and Jocko, he liked his um, uh, materials. Um, you know, because did you forget that one of Jocko's byproducts was his Jocko's pocket rocket, his little marijuana pipe? Yeah. Did you guys ever yes. hear about that? Yeah, he built these yeah. custom-made marijuana pipes. Uh, anyway, he got this idea, and and the first one, yeah, was in fiberglass, but they realized it was too heavy, and they they crashed it. So the second one was built out of aluminum, and then That's that right. ended up being the mold. And, and the funny thing that, well, one of the stories I love, the anecdotal stories, is the Jocko Don Garlitz uh, um, uh, commissioned work. 
and how Garlitz was building a mid-engine, you know, short wheelbase car and went to Jocko and commissioned one. And surprisingly, uh, Garlitz's car turned out exactly like Jocko's first car. He made a mold off it. But it ended up being a mess because Garlitz was saying, oh, this car lifts at mid-track and it carries the wheels and the, the aerodynamics are all wrong. And, and Jocko took great, great uh, issue with this. And so when um, Jocko found out that uh, Don Garlitz had had his two blowovers, he wrote some really nasty letters to him saying, you know what, you, so it's, I think it's funny. You've had two blowovers in your cars that you built and you did the aero work on. My car has never blown over. My car has never carried the wheels and you can't find me a picture that shows it. So when, when Garlitz got inducted into the Hall of Fame, Jocko wrote this letter that's in Garlitz Museum, basically, you know, telling them both they're just a bunch of, you know, knuckleheads and jerks and don't know what they're doing. It's, it's pretty funny. And then, of oh, course, yeah. the, the Moon Eyes one was a derivative of that. And I think there were six total I heard, but I don't know. I'm not sure. You probably yeah. would have had a better history than I would. Yeah, well, I think from the best that we've found out, and again, you know, we were, we were lucky enough to be talking to Jocko when he was still alive, and um, he was so keen to to try and have the car back in the states, and then you know his his health wasn't that good, so you know he and he didn't have a lot of money, um, but he would have liked to have come out to Australia to um, you know witness it at the track, you know things like that. But he was so keen on the the data, you know, like just what it was doing, how it's behaving you know, all that sort of stuff. And he was still in love with the project, you know, that long after he'd originally done it. Um, it was unbelievable. And and what um, was interesting too is that we did a, a launch for the 3M Training Centre in, in Sydney. And um, and I knew, you know, Chip uh, liked his motorsport and stuff. Mm-hmm. And so 3M said, oh, listen, if you got something special, you can bring, you know, just as a bit of a surprise for Chip. And I said, well, we can probably dragged a streamliner in that's something pretty unique yeah. and um and i'd already given chip way back when i'd already given chip a poster of of it when we when we'd done it the first time mm-hmm. so and then chip walked in and he kind of just got a little little bit of a glazed eye out of it and he said dad worked on this with jocko i said i never knew that and he says yep he said dad worked on this yeah his so, dad did a lot of pretty he, he worked on the piranha amt rear engine uh, drag yeah car. And yeah. Gene Jeffries so, or uh, Gene Winfield, and then with um, with Gartlets, um, because you know Jocko's whole whole thing with the the whole shape of that blade of that, you know the body that is uh, aeroplaning upside down is, he kept on playing with stuff and playing with what he was smoking as well, um, and <laughs> holding holding his little models up in the desert with you know s- bits of string and, mm-hmm. and wool hung off it. D- yeah. Yeah, to try and see where it was moving. And, you know, it was a poor man's, because uh, especially where he was at 29 Palms, it was like nothing there except those 29 Palms. So um, he had lots of crosswinds and stuff to play with. And he got that downforce, you know, almost dialed in pretty well at the angle right over the back wheels. Whereas mm-hmm. Gartlett's figured, you know, the bigger the angle, the more downforce, and that's right. why the thing was lifting. Yeah, it's 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 just – I and, and we, when you look at the two personalities between Jocko and Garlitz, that's a train wreck waiting to happen. I mean, just, <laughs> oh, yeah. but both yeah. those guys, you know. <laughs> yeah. yeah, two 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 people on the wrong solar system, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, Garlitz will go further and tell you that there's other solar systems with other intelligent life. He's a he's a big UFO guy. It's kind of funny. Uh, yeah. But, yeah. But I just and, love that you guys. I mean, here's a car that has so much significant history here in the states in California, locally with Jocko's porting service, what he did. And the fact that you get that car, you not only 
get it, but you get it. I mean, you you understand that car, its history. You play it as a tribute to Jocko, what that car meant, because it was early days of development when, you know, they pushed about the limits as much as they could from a from a from a Hemi motor and you know nitro and benzene and all the stuff they're putting in there. And then the next big theory was let's go aero, let's go streamlined bodies. And some of my friends uh, that I went to school with the Mooney Hammond Faust car, they tried that. Um, you know, of course Jocko's car, even with the Raprossi and Montanello car, they tried one um, with the, the wedge, the the hang ten wedge car that did really well. Um, but the theory didn't play out because the extra weight didn't didn't create significant advantage versus, you know, keeping the car going forward. And they learned so much about downforce. Yeah, like you said, this is in the days when they glued a string of yarn onto a body, a scale body, and ran out to a, a high wind area and looked at how the, the, the yarn moved around. Yeah, and, and I think, too, the, the, the fundamental problem, you know, you, in, in ways you'd love um, someone with a lot of money um, to just pretend that we could use today's technology with the oh, same no. body. Yeah. Because you know, if you can make, mm-hmm. you know, if you could surface that thing properly, yeah, um, and, and really work, you know, still being true to the form, but really surface that thing properly and yeah, and really move the air around the way you want it, but right. have light, lighter materials and, I mean, it was a square box tube frame, you know, it's it's, right. it's pretty, pretty agriculture in the term of things, but mm-hmm. you know, when you consider that, you know, it's empty, you know, is a sculpture. Um, yes. You know, he did an exceptionally ju- good job at what he did, um, and and I think too it was just too far, it was too far a reach for for most people within the sport to understand, and it scared them. Yeah. And it's as you know, it's it's easier to ignore something if it scares you. Yeah, and it's interesting too that the theory between a funny car and a top fuel car is a, is a top fuel car is made to kind of cut through the wind and cheat the wind. And make mechanical advantage by cutting through it and using a rear wing of downforce over the rear tires only in the front just kind of keeps the front down there and the, the chassis yeah. bows and when the mm-hmm. chassis bows it becomes like a fulcrum like a pry bar you put under a rock a funny mm-hmm. car is just the opposite a funny car uses all that body downforce to put force down on the chassis and load the chassis downward to load the rear tires so they kind of work at opposite principles principles of leverage angle yeah but the early cars almost were too effective in downforce had too much rear downforce and that's what caused the lift and yeah. so Jocko was a smart guy because he has that really elongated tail section that allowed the wind to escape off the back of the car without creating negative downforce and without creating mm-hmm. vortices that come back and disrupt it. And um, he was one of the first guys, in fact, one of the conversations I had with him you know, when I was a kid, like 12 or 13, I thought was phenomenal. He said, so I was asking him about you know, how downforce works and why this body in this car. And he goes, well, you know, the, the, the worst thing is the air that gets behind the car. And I said, well, what do you mean behind the car? He goes, well, have you ever ridden on the back of a motorcycle with one of your friends? I said, yeah. I said, do you ever notice your hair goes forward, not backwards? He goes, that's the wind going around the front guy's head and getting behind yours and creating negative forces and little vortices and inefficient wind pattern. Whenever wind doesn't move out of the way, it slows things down. It's like water. You want water to run in laminar flow. You don't want water to run into water. And I thought, man, that's like the most elegant explanation. In fact, I used part of that theory years later i was lucky enough to work with alan johnson when they were working on the toyota bodies at swift and had a couple areas and i said and i said hey you know i learned this from jocko maybe this applies because they were looking at how they put the bump in front of the supercharger to try to relieve wind to get it to cheat over the windshield instead of getting stuck behind the blower again creating negative forces and i thought geez i mean jocko so the difference in those two conversations when i was 12 and when the swift car that you're talking 50 years I mean, that's this guy's was way ahead of his time. 
Yeah, exactly. And and, and it was just it, it was just thinking differently, you know, in, yeah. in in so many ways. And and that's unfortunately it was like you said earlier, it was all that like too much downforce yeah. that made the car unstable. And the same as when we went to go around and repair it. So like you said earlier, you know, the, we, we know the first body got damaged, you know, and, and they started then working on um, using aluminium and forming the mm -hmm. panels to kind of be able to easily, you know, change stuff around without having right. a mold or whatever. Right. And, and then it was from that, they ended up taking a mold once they kind of got it right. But because it's hand form, you have all these inaccuracies. So when right, right. when we're starting to repair it, and I mean, because I'm a stickler for accuracy and evenness and taking patterns of everything, well, in that tail area from the left-hand side to the right-hand side, the mm -hmm. height was something like about an inch and a half to two inches. So we corrected all of that. So that alone was throwing the air around the car unevenly from one side to the other. Right, and it, and it still performed. You know what I mean? Yeah, so, crazy? Yeah. So, well, so you know, to be able to, to have had the technology we have today, and in line of materials, and and been able to physically mill something or whatever, um, I think it'd be really interesting just to be able to go down that exercise. But that's where we've got you know Norm that owns the Streamliner. Um, he bought it sight unseen. I believe the car came in came in via you know, a container in a, as a boat or, or a tub or something because he was he was scared at the time that somebody would get, you know, wind that it shouldn't be leaving America because of the history. Yeah. Um, and, of course, he knows that the minute it goes back, he's probably not – he doesn't need to sell it. Um, he loves the car more than any of all of his other vehicles. Mm -hmm. he's, he, he's He said – He's got, you know, he's got literally every car he's ever built over, you know, 45 years, um, and he's got a huge collection of his own vehicles. And his whole thing is that if he could go down to to get his groceries in this car, he would. <laughs> I um, love that because he just absolutely loves it. And then, of course, you know, the what you know, I I'm so thankful for is that, you know, in a lot of ways, he gave me free reign to really fix the car to the point that we are the caretakers that you know it will last mm -hmm. another hundred years or more yeah. so we put you know a lot of quality into what we did um and and he doesn't see it that often just under a car cover in his car collection right so he said every time he takes the car cover off it which is usually when we're going to take it somewhere he said i sit there and look at it and it's like looking at the fresh car again and he said yeah. like i still to this day don't believe that something that beautiful is mine well, if we can, uh, my, my efforts are to not just get that at Pebble on the lawn, but to take it to the NHR Museum, um, oh, take yeah. it to a couple other events and, and cackle it there. Maybe, maybe you know, Bakersfield, one of the yeah. other events or one of the, you know, yeah. the, the, um, the Midwest one. But that, that car, I mean, that's just history. And it, I just think it's awesome the, what you did and the way you did it. So sorry to take everybody down the rabbit hole on that, on that car. If <laughs> are, you're, are you, if you're, if are you're you good, Carson? I think good? I got my, I think I got my, well, I'll tell you what, I could go two hours in that car, but I'll stop now because you know what a geek I am. But yeah, no, I got my fix. No, that's awesome. And it, it, so, okay. So speaking of going through and detailing a car like this and making it what it is, your start in the industry, how do you go from being an enthusiast as a young man to working on something like that? Oh God, this is going to be a long story. <laughs> I forget, if I was going to load one up for you, I wanted to get yeah. you really good. Right. <laughs> um, to this day, I still don't know why um, I do what I do. Um, there was nobody in my family that we, 
into cars. Um, I I grew up um, um, single parent. My 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 mother brought us up, um, so I didn't have a father influence at all, uh, which in some ways was sort of difficult, but you know, it is what it is. And so I had no influence of a father or, you know, this is what you should do and this is what, you know, didn't have any garage, didn't, have, didn't even have a driveway for that matter um, in the area. You know, we, we lived a pretty poor existence, et cetera. Um, she was just a clerk. Um, so I, for whatever reason, um, started buying Hot Rod magazines from the, the local news agency at, you know, age eight and ten. And, and that was the probably the tail end of our panel van industry. And, you know, I was getting on my bike and I was riding for, you know, an hour, hour and a half to the hot rod shows, you know, my mother not knowing that I was off wandering the streets. Um, and and I wouldn't have any money to get in or wouldn't wasn't supposed to be there. So I would just, you know, turn up at, at setup time and wander around. And thankfully, luckily, uh, a few of the car owners and stuff um, said, well, if you're going to hang around and annoy the piss out of me, um, I'll better teach you how to polish. So I was probably influenced at, at a very early age at the, the show car thing. And then I used to buy the, um, remember the, uh, what was it Hot Rod Show Wheels? No, sorry. Hot Rod, Hot Rod Show Wheel. Oh, those have... like the best with the ISCA cars. Yeah. Oh, there yeah. you go. So, okay. So I used to buy that, and that was my inspiration. Of course, you know, Brian, you probably remember that you know, so much of it was custom paint and, you know, like really lollipoppy stuff. Right. So I wanted to do that, and there was a car, I think it was called Spellbound, which was a Volkswagen that was just like redone and redone and redone. Um, and I was a bit of an old Volkswagen head. So um, I was going to build myself a Volkswagen. Anyway, I decided that because um, I couldn't go to college, um, so I had to go and get a job, um, you know, to help my mother, you know, pay for the house and stuff. So um, at that time at school, all the teachers were saying that, um, you know, the economy is that bad. You know, all you all your kids aren't going to get, you're going to end up, you know, drug addicts. Essentially, you know, great way of, um, you know, instilling uh, confidence in the kids. So I wandered off, scared, scared that I wasn't going to get a job. I wandered off and I came back to school the next week after looking for these jobs as uh, apprenticeships and or for work experience. And I came back with 22 apprenticeships. Oh. And I said, who? And I was handing them out like lollipops. So who wants this one? Who wants that one? Right? So no jobs out there, eh? So anyway, the very first place I went to was a shop that had a business card with a hot rod on the front of it. And he said that he specialized in candies and pearls and stuff. So he gave me an apprenticeship and he's just doing yard, car yard work and stuff. So he started me from an apprenticeship. And so I finished school on the Friday in 1979 and it was like this early December. Um, and the Monday morning I started work and he was doing a lot of yardy work and stuff. So my introduction to the, to the car industry as a spray painter was, um, you worked like 16, 18 hour days. That's what you did. You worked Saturdays, you worked Sundays. So I never knew any different. So I just became this, you know, self-confessed workaholic. And, and then what got me through was I had a TAFE teacher, like a, a trade college teacher that wanted to play with candies and pearls and stuff. So he used to have a night course and obviously did a day course. So he used to stay behind for an hour and a half and he and I would use, you know, the government's, um, equipment and the government's materials and play 
um, to give me some input to be able to see how I could be, how I could custom paint. And and it's from that, you know, I kind of like snowballed into different shops, worked at different restoration shops to um, I ended up heading up a, uh, in Sydney that was specialising in doing Rolls Royces and um, like concourse level Rolls Royces. And, and at the time, uh, all the convertible Rolls Royces, Cornishes that came into Australia were painted in acrylic. And I had to strip those and completely redo them in two-pack um, on a brand new vehicle, which was really a great way of sort of teaching someone processes. And then I went moved on from there into a, into a Porsche place that did uh, Porsches, Ferraris, and Mercedes-Benzes for concourses. So I had a lot of you know, influence in the in the restoration market, but I was actually getting in trouble because I was over-restoring them, because I was cutting and buffing them, I was doing really good door jams, and I was making them too good. Um, so <laughs> there was there was frustration coming out of that. So um, so I decided that there was going to be no money in being able to do um, this stuff because, and as I said, I I didn't have a driveway, I didn't have a garage, I had nowhere to do a car and it was like this catch-22, if I if I rented a place then I had no money to do any work because I couldn't afford to buy anything. <laughs> so I thought, well what I'll do is I'll reverse engineer my knowledge. So I started getting involved in judging at a very young age, um, at probably 22, 23, I was, I was uh, like the national chief judge for the Street Machine Association and that was a very um, young brigade, so it was all young people, so it was kind of almost acceptable. And then amongst that, I used to have to work with the hot rod judges at all the major hot rod shows. So then they took me under the wing, and I learned a lot about you know judging and processes and stuff. But like I suppose you could say, I learned a lot from other builders' mistakes, if you know what I mean. So you're judging and looking for faults in these cars, and there's not so much that you're finding the fault, but there could have been a better way of doing it. And then you're talking to people that have far more knowledge and education of you at the time. So you've got this database of, you know, if you were going to go and do something, you would do it differently because of what you've been influenced by. So, and then it was probably in 88, it was my first trip to America. Um, and, you know, I used to just to grovel all over, you know, anything the boy did, probably more the, you know, the, the um, Hot Rods by Boyd era, you know, and, and, and the real early stuff when he was really challenging um, stuff. You know, I think I remember the uh, the, the Newton's um, 27T, the blue 27T yep. the tube front. Yep. Um, so that's probably the car that, that really cemented it for me that, you know, that was kind of where the level was at and where you had to go to. And that was in the middle of being finished off when I went to Boyd's. And, and that same thing, you know, I was a little little snotty those kids so I was down the back talking to the painter and and I mean burnt, burnt and a few of the other guys were there um, and I, I was picking the brains of a lot of them and probably spending too much time there um, but the one thing that I came back with was that and nothing against Boyd and anything at the time but I was actually a little bit disappointed in the total level of paint finish that he was doing so I kind of got myself into trouble when I came back home because, you know, I was really disappointed. And what Boyd had told me at the time is that we don't have time to do really, 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 really super cars. One, because of the budgets, and two, because we've got to do a lot of cars to make it all work. It's all about getting more wheels on more builds. So, and then, you know, later on, I got talking to Chip about things uh, further on, and that's he said the same thing, that when Chip decided to start Foose, 
you know, he wanted to really build on doing really stepping the, the mark up a bit. So, um, not, you know, different people for different courses and for different reasons, but I have constantly used, um, you know, both, you know, Rad Rise by Troy, um, chips and even, you know, Boyd stuff as my benchmark of where I wanted to take my ability and surround myself with as many good people as I could find to, to um, take design and finish to the level that I could. And, you know, every day you're learning, you know, better and smarter ways of doing things, but I also surround myself with some of the best people I can work with. That's amazing. <laughs> See, that, that's one of the things we talk about a lot here too. Brad and I have this constant thing where we love being the dumbest guy in the room because mm. if you surround yourself with smarter and smarter people, to me, that's the most fun. There's always something to learn. And yes. it's tough if you're around people who do either an equal level to you or a little bit less than you. It don't get me wrong. It, it's fun to try to help someone. That I live for that. I love getting those questions from people. How do you do this? And I'll sit there for an hour and talk to somebody and just go, oh, this is how I do this. But mm. my brain is happiest when I can learn. And that's, Oh, yeah. Exactly. That's, it's so and cool so, that you can and, do that. Well, and see, so it's even like spray, the, the way painters in Australia have been trained over the years, that it's only probably more recently, you know, say the last five to ten years, that surfacing has become the thing you, you do. Prior to that, you know, it was kind of accepted that if the door didn't, you know, it had the bulges or whatever in it and the door didn't fit, it wasn't surfaced to each of the panel next to it. Um, that's how it was. And that's the stuff that always frustrated me. So the whole, the Ziggy, well, we, st we started off as Ziggy's Hot Rods um, and then we, you know, changed it later on to Ziggy's Design Driven, uh, mainly because we found that even in Australia is, you know, having Z a name like Ziggy's Hot Rods, you got pigeonholed that you were doing traditional hot rods, which is kind of further from what we're about. Um, and, you know, I was really f trying to focus more on the whole design thing. And the problem we have in Australia is that the good thing is now it's getting stepped up. You know, the more people that have gone to the US and seen that, you know, surfacing is just what everyone does. Um, some of it do it better than others, but essentially it's being addressed. So now we've got, you know, we've got some extremely talented people in Australia and like, like Carsten was saying earlier, the, the craftsmanship and the, the level of craftsmanship we've got in Australia is phenomenal. Um, probably the only reservation is that we probably don't put enough effort into, um, you know, visual design and, and you know, recreating design stuff and having a, a, a like a, a more of a design brief to the whole build rather than uh, what we can buy to fit, so to speak. Um, but there's, you know, if, if we ever decided to get serious um, on taking on the world with an overly designed car, there's no shortage of, of talent in this country, that's for sure. Oh, no doubt. And and that's that's kind of thing that I, I thought about quite a lot as we we're going into this episode. Because I was really amazed that it hasn't been adopted yet, especially with the technology in uh, in 3D printing, rapid prototyping. Mm -hmm. Uh, use of composites. I mean, I keep thinking in the back of my head, jokingly, like, if the Australians get a hold of that technology, we're doomed. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and that's the interesting part, you know, like um, probably two of the major builders so far have got 3D printing um, that they're taking on board and more and more of us are utilizing 3D printing. You know, we're, we're um, really morphing into that um, world now. Um, so we've, 
with my background. So essentially, uh, my pitch to anyone is that, um, you know, what I've just said about my history, I'm still essentially a spray painter. Um, I've I've learned a lot over the years by, um, you know, the same old thing, you know, screwing up and, and, and getting better at things. But ideally, I... Um, I thread their model of our stuff on, you know, design frames and chassis, et cetera, out of necessity. Um, and we want to take that, you know, that whole direction uh, to, to the next level with um, taking on a little bit more 3D printing. Um, we're, ex we're in the process now of, of um, probably reinventing ourselves and, and um, expanding more into the, the parts world, uh, mainly out of necessity through the, you know, back on the SEMA thing. Um, is that the big thing, the big push uh, via SEMA and big push via the manufacturers is that there's no shortage of people selling the stuff. There's a huge shortage of people knowing what they're selling and there's a huge shortage of people being able to fit the stuff. So the whole installation network um, is where the manufacturers really want to be at because there's no shortage of being able to sell it. Um, but then the guy buying it, you know, for argument's sake, you buy a serpentine system from Built Specialties. Um, you buy a serpentine system and, and you give it to a guy that's never, ever fitted one of those. He's going to take twice as long as a guy that's fitted 20 of them. So then that serpentine system becomes more costly. Now, the guy can also go home and fit it himself, and that's fine. But the point is that anyone that's, you know, flicking a, a part to a shop or the shop supplying a part, the harder that part is to fit or the more educated the guys fitting that part are, the better price point that product is and it makes the brand look better. And that's my whole spin on things nowadays is to, to try and bring that that network of, of educated installers across the country um, that can fit the product, can talk to customers about the product, can promote the product, um, and, and, and lead by example on products fitted um, because that's really what's going to push the market forward. And when it comes down to, as we know, you know, like I said earlier, you know, you can you buy the parts anywhere, but getting good service um, and, and, and backup service and support and knowledge, that's the hardest thing to buy. So now, was it mentioned during the SEMA Australia thing? I don't know. It just seems logical to me that it would almost benefit from there being like a SEMA Garage Australia version where you could have training classes, uh, you could have technology sharing and things like that. You know, yeah, well, there's got, we've, we've got, um, there is kind of that thing happening. So in Australia, our, our you know, the closest thing to a SEMA type um, fraternity is a fraternity called the AAAA, which is the Australian Automotive Aftermarket Association. And unfortunately for for a good period of time, th their focus was really more what they believed the aftermarket was, was the companies that were making um, a, a generic aftermarket water pump for a Toyota or whatever. So they, they deemed that as being the aftermarket. So they haven't run with the modified and the, the custom aftermarket as such. Since the whole SEMA things happened, they've, you know, SEMA's kind of, worked and not worked with them you know there's a bit of a love-hate relationship but but they are doing a wonderful things now and taking things like the SEMA garage as a lead so um, I think currently there's a, a SEMA garage style of um, 
facility being built. I'm not sure if it's finished yet, but it's at least being built in Melbourne. Um, and then that they're going to share data um, via the manufacturers, etc. So that's going to be the, the, the probably the next best thing that will step forward. Um, and they're talking about being able to do that at least in like Sydney, Melbourne and Brisbane oh. to have. And it's only because probably more reasoning behind it is that um, they will have the ability to you know, service a little bit more of the country. Um, but the, the problem is that um, now that we've got, well, the problem and the good thing is now that we've got everything imported, there's all this parity to what's coming into the country. So, and then at the, the SEMA conference we had in Melbourne, um, that whole thing has been about um, how the sharing of um, data now as what the differences are between a left-hand drive car and a right-hand drive car on a parity of import. So, you know, what is the, what is the physical difference between um, a, a left-hand drive um, Ranger that's sold to America now and, and a right-hand drive um, Ranger that's sold to Australia, New Zealand and Dubai or wherever. So, so then the manufacturers know exactly where the differences are. So if they've got to do slight modifications to their templates, they know what those templates are. Okay. And that's going to move things forward like ten, tenfold. And I keep thinking this would be a great time uh, for a documentary filmmaker to come down there and make a propaganda film just to make it seem, because like Americans, we just view, it seems like you hear Australia and you go, oh, it's this wide open area with the outback and you guys have to trudge, you know, four, it's four days of walking through, you know, giant yeah. spiders yeah. and everything that to get somewhere. <laughs> How great would it be to have this propaganda film where there's a couple hot rod shops to get together and they try to caravan across the outback to get to the new SEMA garage? Yeah, now that's, that's actually food for thought. <laughs> just sponsored by Holly. Jeez. <laughs> oh, now I see now we crossed the line in my day job. <laughs> we love Holly. <laughs> That's Sally, my other half. She's uh, my better half. She's here. Um Awesome. Well and thank you for loaning him to us for the night. Thanks all, for loaning him. It's just lunchtime, dude. Yeah, it's lunchtime for them. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, he's been called for lunch. We're sitting here going, okay, so it'll be, it'll be like, you know, 930 here. And we'll still be hanging out. One thing you had, you had mentioned, you know, obviously you're talking about cars that are sold in like the Middle East. But just as soon as you said Dubai, it clicked in my head. I thought, are, do you guys get clients from the Middle East? Um, generally, we, we get inquiries. We sell a few well, like us personally don't, but there has been vehicles that have been sold into that. Uh, thing, but uh, we find generally, like as you know, at SEMA, you know, they're doing the rounds and trying to buy all the fresh stuff at SEMA right. from all the all the builders and stuff. But um, SEMA has a um, uh, like a SEMA Dubai show as part of their custom car show, um, and a few vehicles from here and and builds um, not so much custom stuff, but more um, upgraded. Um, sports cars and supercars and stuff that have gone over there they just buy them up straight away but as far as um contracting to have stuff built we find that um in that market they just want it in so much of a hurry it's got to be really a done a done car to sell right on yeah i know out here it, it's really big for the off-road market 
uh, a, yeah. a lot of companies will send personnel over there to put a truck together for them on site. Mm-hmm. I was just wondering if it's the same way down there. I'm trying to find those weird parallels between us. Yeah, there is. I mean, there has been like buyers that have done the rounds, but yeah, they finally they usually find that they um because there's a you know anyone that's any good here is you know got a bit of a waiting list, um and they don't like to wait, um and they like things in a hurry, um and you know it's little things like that. But I mean, there has been stuff that has been built for them on spec, um but it's not that it doesn't happen, but it's not as common as you would think it would be. I think there is a universal truth. The more money you have, the less patient you are. And, yes. the, more, and the more you're used to hearing yes and not no. Yeah. yeah. That's why I have no problem waiting like months and months and months for anything. Exactly. It kind of works out exactly. okay. Yeah. I wonder if that would be a good cottage industry, though, if you could round up a couple builders who are just literally like nomadic builders and they roam the earth just bolting together cars for rich guys who are in a hurry. <laughs> <laughs> oh no, no, no! That's just way too painful. <laughs> well, I'm thinking, yeah, you have to be. It would take a special kind of person to do that. But I'm thinking, with drone parts delivery, like we could, we could revolutionize this whole thing in an afternoon. Oh, abs- Well, just maybe just build a really Fred, big Freddy printing bed and just build it over there. Yeah. <laughs> hey. <laughs> just almost like the like like uh, the one man band version of a shop. He's pulling with this truck, and it's got everything. This could oh, what if you could three D print a car on site? Well, like the one man band, you could have like the welder between his knees, the impact in his arms. You could have like <laughs> yeah. the you know yeah. the, the giant drum in the back could be the paint booth, or you know just yeah. bolt, things bolt onto him, and he goes from place to place. And it only takes a week, doesn't it, Carson? Oh well, of course. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, that's the biggest travesty that ever happened with TV. Was well, we can get a car in a week on TV. Well, when you look at it, and the way Chip explains it. Most of those builds have between 25 and 30 builders. Most yeah. of those guys worked at least 16 hours, some more. So, so take each guy and you get a two-hour or you get a two-day work effort out of 16 hours. You get two days. Multiply that times 35 guys, 25 guys. Yeah, that's about that's about a two or three-year waiting list. Yeah, that's right. When you add up all the hours. Well, I made the statement years ago, and Chip repeated in one of our podcasts the other day that overhauling made about as much sense as getting nine women to give you a baby in one month. Yeah. <laughs> I like that one. That's, that's very good. You know, the numbers add up on paper, but it has nothing to do with reality. <laughs> yeah, that's for sure. And uh, and it's like with um, out here, we have um, the burnout competitions. So the burnout competitions. Oh, you know my part- love for burnouts. This is great. Yes, yes. Well, <laughs> and and I think I mentioned on your your little rant um, <laughs> the other day um, that I still, there's got to be something wrong with my DNA because to this day, I still don't understand it. So our big summer nets um, event that's on every year, you know, essentially is, you know, a burnout competition with other things going on. Um, but essentially you go to see the burnouts and, you know, you get 120,000 people there and, you know, they mix it with alcohol and everything else. And it's, you know, it is what it is. You know, I've probably spent in 20 or 20 events, what was it, for 30 odd events, I've probably spent a couple of hours in total. And it's just because, you know, a customer or a friend will be going down to look at it and you'll kind of look at a couple of heavy hitters and that's it. But I don't know how they sit there for days on the end getting... Yeah covered in 
black and getting excited. <laughs> it's just there's something wrong with me because I I just don't fit that mold. Um, and I tend to think and a bit be blind that you know you get at a drag strip, you do a burnout for a reason, and you go drag racing, you know. And and uh, my other, I suppose, pet hate is you know I'd like to see autocross flourish a bit better in Australia. It's starting to happen, but it's what I see is that whatever we're doing straight line burnout uh, type of things, then the manufacturers are making a lot of stuff for the same thing and we're actually not getting enough um, time and effort and investment in developing more products that, you know, work with, you know, road going cars that, um, that really address, you know, better dynamics and better fit and better ride quality and all that sort of stuff. There's less and less. So, the ones that are winning the game in that is the American manufactured products to do address those is what's been imported and fitted, you know, and that's where I see that, that you know, almost a dynamic change in that um, if we could put more effort into that, I think that would be a good thing, but it's still saying there's nothing wrong with um, the burnout competitions or people that follow that. It's just not my bag. We know that people could probably bring a lot more autocross over there. So I think that yeah. would be an easy thing through our network. Um, I just I imagine right now if, if all that came over there were parts, you know, to to basically build a fourteen hundred horsepower engine to crank a fifteen inch, you know, five inch wide wheel to to make smoke. I just imagine that everybody's driving around out there just doing burnouts from every place, you know. So your trip mm. A to B is just not one long burnout. It's probably yeah, the exactly. darkest roads in the world. If you look at Google Maps. <laughs> <laughs> it says that like many years ago when Troy Japania came out and he went to the Summonats, you know, he was invited to come to the Summonats and he had to stand there and stuff. And they said, oh, you know, you got to come out to the burnout. So he goes out to the burnout. So he came back and, you know, he's just laughing his head off. And he said two things. He said, I've never seen so many superchargers in my life in the one place. He said, I just cannot understand it. Whoever's selling these superchargers is making a lot of money. <laughs> Well, when I was speaking to a guy like Troy, I was fortunate enough to be part of, you know, projects that have uh, won things like the Mother Shine Award and kind of shifting gears. That's something you're a big part of the judging for that. Yes. Yes. So I've been doing that for 12 years. Um, so initially it came. So I going back into Australia, um, I because I was doing so much judging at an early age, um, I was designing a lot of judging systems in the early days. Um, and then uh, there's a, a um, competition here called Showcar Superstars. So I developed the, the first part of that with the, even down to the, the design and manufacture the billet trophies for it. Um, and it was kind of really based on, on coming up with, you know, the equivalent I suppose, to a Riddler Award in Australia, so that the cars are already being judged. Um, we already know they've got good paint, good trim, and lots of stuff it was about finding the finer points, like, you know, how much effort are they put into, you know, either remanufacturing or, you know, recontouring whatever, you know, a door hinge, a door rubber, you know, re-engineering parts that fit better, more so than just the simplistics of the, the basic stuff. So I was involved in all of it at a very early stage, um, and but I don't believe it's ethical to to have um, to build cars um, in the industry and judge cars in the industry. So I don't judge. I hadn't judged 
cars uh, professionally since I've had the shop. So um, I kind of bailed out of that, but I was I was kind of like a bit of an advisor to you know the power players in the game. And along the lines, I we took two cars to New Zealand um, when I was uh, we used to be the Australian agency for Budnick Wheels, and it was when um, Chip went to New Zealand um, with uh, Peter Elmers and stuff. Chip went to the museum and had a great time. Jimmy and stuff went, and then the next year, um, Troy Japania was supposed to go, and for whatever the reason that the, the whole deal fell over, so. I got to know the promoter of the New Zealand show and he um, he said, have you got some cars you can bring over? So we had a couple of cars that not, not that we built, but we had supplied wheels for. So we came up with this Budnick New Zealand, you know, tour. So we went, took the owners and the cars over there and showed New Zealand some of our build quality and stuff and had some really, you know, great time. And that's when I met Peter Elmers from New Zealand uh, Mothers and they were also judging at that show so they started judging along and and i and he said oh do you know anything about judging i said oh yeah i know a few things so one thing led to another and i ended up sort of helping them sort out the judging because it was a you know it was a bit of a problem so we went through and you know we judged it and had some fun and he says oh you should come to uh to uh seema and judge at seema and i kind of like grinned and sort of like yeah they're like that's going to happen and anyway, I came back, came back home and mind my own business. And then next thing, um, and I'd met Jim um, Holloway from Mothers uh, in the early 80s when he first came to Australia. And uh, anyway, he shoots me an email and said, oh, would you be interested in coming over and judge? Uh, can you send me your credentials? Um, so I sent him my credentials and then he says, oh, shit, you're in. And then from that time forward, I've been, I haven't missed one yet. Um, and we have a good mix of probably 50-50 um, Australian, New Zealand and American judges. And the whole point of it is to keep it, you know, above board, clean, you know, no politics. We don't care what Polish company or who you are. Um, and it's myself and one of the others are pretty much the um, the overseas of it, etc. Um, we've got a good cross-section of guys. And um, we, in the past, you know, there's been cars that have won the Riddler that haven't won the Shine Award because, you know, again, there's no, no point in having half a dozen awards across the country that are for the same thing. So it's a Polish company award. So whole and solely, it's got to be about, you know, quality of finish. Um, but it, we are still looking for a lot of the attributes that, that uh, a, a traditional um a Riddler type uh, build would be that, you know, it's fabrication, creativity, you know, func it's got to be functional, um, you know, everyone's got to work, etc. And the interesting part that um, has come out of that is we've got, you know, a very interesting mix of cars that have, that have won the shine over the years. Um, but just so that everyone understands is that it's not setting a stone, but essentially we have 10 choice award winners. And from those 10 choice cars, we get the best of those 10 is the winning car. But those 10 choice cars represent a segment of SEMA. So we've got to have a truck, you know, like a street road truck. We've got to have a high rise truck. We've got to have a sports car. We've got to have, you know, a late model muscle. We've got to have an early model muscle. We've got to have all those different segments of the market um, and find 
one that represents that and we interview a lot of the builders and owners through the process which is more my gig and my gig is I follow a lot of those builds through the year so that we've got the most amount of data at hand when we are actually judging the cars and that's how I've been you know, probably lucky enough to 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 meet a lot of the professional builders and stuff over the years and you know bit like friends and stuff but it still doesn't you know influence you know the results it's all about the best car on the floor um, and that's essentially what the Shine Award represents is the, the best example um, of a standout vehicle that probably focuses on finish and design more than anything else. And that's, that's what we do. Well, I tell you what, I, there are, and I will not name them, there are numerous other shows that I wish followed your, the Mother's Awards uh, level of integrity and methodology. Because it's clear, it's defined, it can be easily uh, described. When you look at it, you get it. And when you hear the details of how you guys go about it, it makes sense. And there's, boy, I tell you, there's just so much subjectiveness going on in car show judging right now. It's crazy. It's nice oh, to hear yeah. it's Nice to hear what you guys are doing. I mean, I know, I've known it because we're involved in the industry and we know the guys at Mothers, of course. But, but mm. it's nice to hear the detail you guys put into it. Yeah, and I mean, to me, I think it's important. And, and even down to, you know, I was... I was um, I was always hesitant in ways that um, that it wasn't taken the wrong way. That you know, a a Riddler winning car wasn't a stand up winner mm -hmm. um, out, outright, um, and and it's all for that. And and sometimes too, even down to we've had cars that have turned up and they're not even clean. Um, and you know, Jeff Jepson, that you know very well. Uh -huh. Yep. Um, you know, he's on the judging team, um, you know, probably one of the best detailers out there and, you know, he loses his shit yeah. uh, if someone brings a dirty car to the show because for the whole reason is that it's just laziness. Yeah. You're there for a reason. You're there to promote. You know, if you're on someone's stand and you're promoting on that stand, that's not doing the right thing by that brand that's, you know wanted you there in the first place so you know things like that you know really sometimes you know wind us up the worst um in that someone just hasn't bothered um or they um they've won all these awards for a year and it's kind of like you know they're kind of maybe a bit over it by then you know that's just quite possible you know you see a lot of the other builders that have you know a whole heap of cars um and it's you know a lot of them are in the same genre um, so that's the hard part is that we're culling, you know, as we were talking about earlier about, um, you know, like almost uh, not getting excited about cars you walk past. You know, we've got a half a million dollar car, a three quarter million car, and that doesn't make the cut, you know, and you just feel like, God, these poor people have put so much effort in these builds and we're almost, almost not interested in it. But our whole point of view is that you, as a team, so we go out, you know, we've got to cover that whole area, which is just insane surface area to try and cover all the different genres and really find the standout cars. Um, and then through the process, um, we we essentially panel judge. And the good thing is we've got people from so many different walks that, you know, there's lots of details that are picked up by lots of different members of the team that, that really bring um, a very, very cool dynamic to getting the right results for the for the overall winner. And the, the other choice award winners, you know, should also hold their head up high uh, because, of, you know, they're very, very special 
range of vehicles that are in that that selection of the choice winners. Yeah, and judging in general is always very tenuous because eventually at the end of the day, one person's happy and everybody else is mad at you. Mm. <laughs> so it's, it's good to have a clear criteria, but yeah, it's not a popularity contest either. But yeah, at the end of the day, there's one guy who's super happy and everybody else yeah. is like, uh, what happened? Yeah, it's funny. Chip was explaining the judging of a contest the other day and he said it kind of comes down to like everybody's pouring over these cars trying to find the worst one inch square on that car. Then yeah. you judge the worst one inch and you find the best worst one inch square on the car. And yeah. that's, that's the car that wins. So, and, and that's my thing too, is you know, that whole, um, I, and again, I'm not saying that that's a right process or the wrong process, but that process, especially, you know, in some of those, those um, awards, you know, there's, there's multi-million dollars spent um, and, you know, decisions and, the reasons for and against um, really don't have the time to to divulge into really um, sometimes the cars that should have won. And, and really, I mean, like I said, you, you've got to have a clear criteria and clear outline and career methodology. And if you don't and it becomes subjective, well, you know, now it's a beauty pageant gone wrong because the girl's in the back room with the judge, not to make a bad analogy. Um, <laughs> but um, hey – benefits of judging i guess um that's sorry. right uh, but yeah it's, it, it, it because i mean i'm not going to name names chip has in certain in discussions but there are a couple car shows that are off the rails right now and people are looking at us like well where's this thing going and you know is this the most beautiful car is it the most well bit built is it the best finish is it the best put together because those are all different criteria and and you know using the word beautiful in a car award it, it infers certain things so yeah well, it's a challenge. And, and I remember way back um, um, the Amber Award, mm-hmm. you know, what the Amber Award, you know, in probably in the Boyd era, what Amber Award represented back then. Right. Um, and um, there was um, the Infinity Flyer and then Boyd had the Roadster. And the Roadster had all these beautiful belly pans and tube frame and all this, you know, basically a handmade concept car. And... Um, you know, Infinity Flyer beat it um, because it didn't have belly pans, and I was sort of like, we only judge what we can see, right? And and the, it becomes subjective, uh, but also too, the problem within that was I think they were trying to pull Boyd back a bit because he was he was really building you know conceptual concept cars, and they wanted him, him building hot rods. Yeah, I mean that's yeah, it's an interesting point too. And then and then how traditional hot rods now seem to get more recognition than custom built hot rods, and uh, and and how they're done. And believe me, any of those cars I would take on any day. I have nothing but you know praise for all those guys. But Mm. how you qualify your award by the description and the criteria sets up what the expectations should be. And it just bothers me when they you're looking at the criteria and the car that won. You go, what did he meet the criteria in that regard? But anyway, it's it's good to hear how you know you know dedicated and and focused you guys are on that process this is awesome yeah and that's what we want you know we want to keep it that way we want to keep it real we want to keep you know i'm, I'm you know, i come back every year um and the same thing you know like it's 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 not a it's not like uh you get paid all this money to be there it's just yeah. i do it do it out of love of it i even got to pay for my own air tickets um so it's it's all about being there and doing my bit I suppose to um, bring what 
my um, knowledge and background in education that I've got from within the industry, um, and um, and also too I get to learn so much from the process, um, which only makes us and the rest of the team stronger each year. Mm -hmm. um, and the interesting part that happened uh, last year was that you know it was almost like we were lacking a little bit of depth in total total show cars like total show cars because as we know that industry that part of the industry we're building more and more drivers more and more usable cars right. and less less of those um you know what we would, would normally have called the iconic um in a typical show cars typical you know amber or or um riddler cars and so that whole pro touring pro mod in a power tour level cars it, the show's full of them, but you know, to look for a car that has that absolute quality of finish um, is the fact that we have kind of an open book each year as to how we can go about still relying on the fact that it's got to have finish and it's got to be the best example. And you know, it was a bit of a not necessarily a um, an out of the box build, but beautiful workmanship in the car that won last year. And um, but in the past, you know, it's sometimes we're, you know, we're culling off three and four really good builds that are all in that genre, um, that are really tight. And in other years, you know, it's it's a bit lax or whatever. And now that everyone's building trucks, you know, I figure we're going to be inundated with trucks this year. Yeah. Um, because everyone's doing the frame for a truck. And then the same thing, you know, we're getting more sports cars like you know, Chips doing the the um, the Jag and Jack, and there's. Yeah. And then Rob Ida's now doing a Jag, mm -hmm. you know. So, so I just see that the whole direction of of styling and direction, I think, is um, is going to be very interesting to follow the next couple of years because I still think where everyone's treading water as to what the next thing is, and it's affecting it not only in the US but also what's happening in Australia here. Well, I wanted to I wanted to kind of ask you about that, not not to make this take your whole day. I, no, that's all right. I'm cool. Oh, awesome, guys! Settle in. Um, no, yeah, um, <laughs> one of the one of the big conversations we have as a group is kind of that lack of a direction of a current trend. And mm -hmm. right now, it doesn't seem like there's one emerging trend. Like a few years back, I mean, you could watch it. Okay, there's Pro Street, that kind of came out. Then you went into a lot of the like the whole dare to be different trend. So it was any kind of weird car you could find, you build. And then pro touring and things like that, but right now we're we're kind of and I don't want to say it's stagnant because there's amazing cars being built, and everything builds off of another existing trend, but there doesn't seem to be a new trend at least in the states. There's there's nothing like new, new. Does that does that make sense? I hope I explained that properly. Yeah, well, I see. I see. Um, I try and read between the lines in advance. Um, and of course, I tell people here, and they go, "Nah, that's not going to happen." And then, like five years later, it's kind of happening, oh, um, or, some, or some, something like that, right? <laughs> but um, I see, to me, the emerging trend that I, I suppose, in ways that we're not accepting, is I think we're going to have a huge influx of European influence vehicles. European base vehicles because you know they're not always total rust buckets they're cheap uh, they have you know better fitting gaps than you know American built cars etc um, and 
there's something a bit odd, you know, and I think we're 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 going to lead into this um, sports car cross labeling of sports cars and performance car type stuff, um, and super saloon like you know European super saloons and stuff. Um, but that's us thinking about it. So we're we're used to four doors, so the super okay. saloon thing is is an easy acceptance for us, and we've also got a lot of them here um, in the US. Um, you know, I just, I just see the the influences like, like I just said earlier. You know, like Chip doing a an E type, Rob either doing an E type, and you know, um, you know, Chip's going to have, you know, probably more of a, you know, sweepy fussy sort of approach to it, and then Rob either's probably going to have a very more vintage sort of approach to it. But the point is that people are going to start paying attention that, heck, you know, Chip's doing a, you know, a sports car, or someone else is doing this, or someone else is doing that, and the muscle cars are getting so expensive. Yeah. Well, and the bad thing of muscle cars, unless it's a hundred point restored with all the chalk markings and everything, people don't view it as accurate. But I think, I mean, yeah, I think you're onto something too, because even years ago when Rod Emery started doing the outlaw cars, you know, the conventional Porsche guys like, Oh my God, sacrilege. How can you do this? Mm -hmm. Well, now it's getting acceptance, just like taking a 55 Chevy and putting new suspension underneath. It makes it look old, but drive better. The Porsches are adapting to that. But then you've got guys like Dave Kended who did, Dave Kindig, who did the uh, Gullwing replica oh, yeah. with the LS yeah, motor, mm-hmm. was phenomenal. Uh, mm-hmm. You got the Red Pig, the four-door Mercedes that a buddy of ours just finished off uh, with the LS motor in it. And you got Chip's mm-hmm. Jag. So, yeah, it's kind of cool that where cars in the past were considered, if you mm-hmm. touched them, it was sacrilege. Now you're finding those cars getting touched because I think probably what happens is people get tired of seeing the same old same old 55 Chevy, the same old you know 63 split window, whatever it may be. Not that those are bad cars. Um, you know, years ago, I sold my 55 because I got tired of going to car shows and people saying, hey, I love your car. Now, was yours the white and blue, the black and white, uh, the coral? And, and, and like, oh, so you know, I'm, what do I do? I knucklehead. I go to a 59 Chevy where nobody was buying those cars back then. But yeah. the cool thing is now with the imports, you get kind of a European, you know, pedigree of sorts with American muscle, which is kind of like American kind of. I mean, let's face it, we're, we're knuckleheads in America. We kind of reinvented Europe to our own ways when we created America. So what the hell, we're doing yeah, it again. Exactly. But then you guys, I think the way Australia looks at things compared to Britain and the way that market emerged, you guys had your own spend on what parts of the British Empire you wanted to embrace and which parts you want to say, no, we're not going to do it that way. Cars, exactly. become, cars become an expression of that. And I think, too, to some degree, um, I think, you know, the generalization of the market is that all these TV shows, you know, everything and, and, you know, the having probably so much access now to, you know, the, all the online auctions, you know, the, the RMs and the, the um, Barrett Jacksons, et cetera. Um, mm-hmm. All of that seems to be that everyone's mindful of the spend and the return. And to me, that's kind of almost a direction of, you know, and again, folks listening, <laughs> um, it's it's not a slap, but the cookie cutter direction is because all these shops are getting so big now that they have to, you know, hurry up and send us another five chassis from, you know, 
uh, Morrison or, or the Roadster Shop or whatever, and it's because it's faster to get that frame under the car, get that car processed, right. and then and then right. and, and it's no different in the Boyd era. Like Boyd was doing a lot of the frames, all the same. Right. You know, he was putting all the effort into the visual design and the packaging of of the style of the car and the personalization of the car. And you know, and Goolsbury's in is doing a great job of that too, and he's turning a lot of cars out. Um, but unfortunately, they're in the situation that it seems to be the you know, like the Dave Lanes and the like the really small guys mm -hmm. that are, are the only ones that are maybe in the position that they can afford to do those you know, individual standout cars if the customer allows them to be. Well, the aspect there is you want to spend your money on customization, not restoration. I don't want to spend 100 hours taking a 55 Chevy back to stock. I want to spend 100 hours changing it. And so exactly. you find that in, in upgrades with chassis and suspension. The other aspect becomes brand management. Is if you're, if you're starting a shop, are you going to be known as the 32 Ford guy? Are you going to be the 40 Ford guy? Are you going to be the truck guy? And so when you look at brand management and you're starting a shop, where do you put your you know kind of pin on the map to start? If you're the guy who does all those different things from brand management, it's a, it's a more difficult task to carry a concentric unified message as to who you are and have people understand you. And so what you try to find is a way to skirt across both aspects of that is be it identified by the quality of your build, not the model style you build and, and the consistent approach you take to it. So that allows you to change things. But there are some guys, God bless them, they're stuck building a certain kind of car. No matter what they do, people are always going to recognize them as, aren't you going to build another 32 Ford? <laughs> you know, and I don't yeah. mention any names because what they do yeah. is great. But I'm sure a lot of those guys, some of those guys are just as happy doing it. But some mm. of those guys, I mean, let's face it, you, you always want to do the next thing and, and build out the next new thing and not not do the same thing over and over and over. You want to you want to make sure you're pushing the envelope. And I always make the analogy to music. You don't want to be that rock band up on stage and they're saying, "Hey, we're going to play some new music tonight." People shout from the crowd, "No place, stairway to heaven." You're like, "Well, here's some new music." People scream so much, you end up you end up doing the same thing over and over. Generally, yeah. you got to figure out in life what you want to do more of, what you want to do less of. What many businesses find out is what they want to do less of is where the money comes from. Uh, okay. Yeah. Well, that's just very very true. And then that's just more recently, that's what we've, I suppose, been trying to address, you know, how how to make money doing this. And I remember talking to Chip all those years ago and he said, all I wanted to do is do cool stuff. But, you know, they, everyone's got something else that subsidizes your existence in some way. Um, so you can do the cool stuff. And that's the hard part because, as we know, there's not really any money in building cool cars. So yeah. you need so something else to subsidize it in some way. Mm -hmm. And in a lot of ways, that's what we're we're doing with parts, et cetera, is that if we do parts and we can offer those services and, and, and use all of the stuff that we've learned over the years and pass it on to the guy that either wants to fit it at home or have us fit, you know, AC or, you know, crate engines or lots of stuff, um, that's that's a simple approach, um, but it all works, and you've got you know a good unit out of it. And by doing that, it means well, okay, well you, you can really concentrate on just doing one really cool build every couple of years. Um, that you know is basically your flagship. But our problem, you know, the Z design driven problem, and and me as the Ziggy's problem is that you know I <laughs> I confuse people because you know we've got. A warhorse Mustang that we built that was, you know, I'd never really done a Mustang before, and yeah. we did that. But but then there's a streamliner, and it's like, you know, do you guys do drag cars? Like, and it, it confuses them. But at the end of the day, 
um, it's you know our my whole point is it's all about pushing the envelope of quality um, and attention to details and that's why just recently I started just posting just you know silly stuff that was about the details and it's amazing oh, the, the, the pictures of your door hinges I was geeking out on those things yeah so I mean those that, parts, those things are phenomenal so so when when you do stuff like that it really is um, almost unsettling because you, you will do a nice hand-formed part or whatever and you get two likes or whatever you put something like that hinge up which is they don't see a lot of, like people do it but they just don't show it sort of thing so then all of a sudden it's just like you get 250 likes and you go yeah. really and it's like, kind of like discerning but because what's come out of that what i've learned and you might be able to give me a little bit more insight from your marketing background carson but um what's come out of it is that everyone referring to me saying that you know but what you're known for is you know in excess you know paint finish and gapping and detail and the right. finishes and stuff is what you're known for so it became a natural pitch whereas all the other stuff was kind of not what i personally have branded myself as the fact that someone else in the shop has done it is almost not hitting the mark and that's the part that was kind of almost frustrating because you like the guys to do the stuff in the shop to get as much recognition you know what i mean and it's just it's just a funny exercise that um that we put ourselves in lately yeah and it, it, it through all the diversity you do there's a consistent theme of fit finish design quality then that becomes a unifying thing you build your brand management around a lot of guys yeah. build the brand management around of i'm the 32 ford guy i'm the 55 ford mm. or chevy guy whatever it may be yeah. so yeah and that that becomes the challenge yeah so Thank now you. can i ask what what are you working on right now well it's interesting we've got um we've got an fc holden which is a 1958 um australian made holden platform and um it's 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 like very much a resto right um not not a real big deep budget on it but in a reasonable budget but essentially um what got us in on it it was the the lady that owns it it was her dad's car from new and he was i think he's 86 or 87 or something and he had had it in his garage he was a retired mechanic uh, and he had it in his garage for like 20 years and he'd done all the mechanical rebuilds and stuff. But when he, once he got to the body, you know, it, it, he was hitting a bit of a brick wall and, you know, typically, you know, retired, poor retired guy, he's probably got, you know, 20 bucks a week or something to spend on it. So he was just like tap dancing. But what he could do, he did pretty well. So um, he was kind of getting a bit frustrated because he wasn't able to finish it and the the daughters, um, you know, they've got big um, um, cattle farm and stuff, and they're sort of, you know, doing all right for themselves. So she bought the car off her father and then um, came across us through a couple of different relationships and stuff and asked us to take the car and just restore it. And it was going to be like 100% restored. And that's how we got involved. And the crazy part is it was to me because of all the stuff that we do, it was kind of like, oh, to restore something, that'll be a bit of a change of pace. <laughs> I can get my head into that, you know, yeah. as frustrating as it can be. And nice. um, so it's just something different, you know, because, again, I was, you know, you can cut and buff and you can cut and weld and fabricate, you know, to, your, to the cows come home, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're enjoying yourself all the time. Right. So 
So I thought, oh, this is a bit of a challenge. We'll just go down this road. And then, of course, he says, oh, um, I've got this son and he's, you know, he's, he's um, goes goes in the hospital every once in a while and stuff. So um, we have to put um, some Bluetooth in it so we can use his iPad sitting in the back seat. I'm going, oh, okay, yeah. So do you want the aircon? She said, oh, you want the aircon? Lots of stuff. So, And then she said, oh, I want, it, I want it safe. I said, we're going to put, you know, disc brakes on it. So before you knew it, you know, it's a resto mod. <laughs> so it's snowballed and snowballed. But the same thing, you know, we've gone around and we've, uh, because it's got, you know, a bit like the 55 Chev type two-tone paintwork and stuff on it. Mm-hmm. Well, where it all wraps inside the door jams, because I, you know, I'm my own worst enemy, um, where all the skins wrap around is right where I've got to have a brake line for the two-tone. Well, you can't get a nice line around there, so we go back in until we can bronze it and fill it and backfill it and have the edge all consistent and it's all polyed and blocked and stuff so that I can run my wraparound colour scheme and then have, you know, a black – because it's a light and dark blue and a, and a black pin line between the two of them. So very, very retro but dialed in kind of along the same lines as what we did with the Streamliner. So nice. um, so it's and, – and the whole point of it is parked in the street. Um, you know, it'll look like, you know, almost a factory car. But, you know, even down to the Venetians in the back seat, like in the back window, you know, they're a little bit dialed in and, you know, we've done some, some good uh, finishing work on the dashboard. You know, it'll have Bluetooth that you won't see anything in it. Um, it'll have a bench seat, but, you know, we're putting a little bit of extra swab so you can sit in it. Um, so the whole thing's been dialed up, but it, it's kind of like a, you know, a, a Cadillac version of the, the, the plain Jane platform that we had. And um, and then just re- just recently, because I've got to put uh, EFI on it, we got a Holden six-cylinder red motor in it. Now that it used to have the equivalent of a small version of the old Blues Flame Six, um, our old uh, one three eight cubic inch motor that was going to like kill itself trying to run a air conditioning pump. So we decided to put a a um, six-cylinder in it, and and now like Holly's got these. Um, uh, sniper two barrels now, so before we put one of those on it, you know, and we've got a auto a four speed auto for it. Um, and now I find, I mean, we're, we're starting to look at developing um, plug and play type suspension upgrades for it uh, to make it ride nice. Now, these people live, you know, up far north Queensland, so the roads aren't the best, so it won't be super low, but it'll be a like a soft, smooth, comfortable ride. Um, it'll handle nice, you know, but, but she really just wants as a cruiser. And the idea is, you know, she wants to grab a dad and junior and, you know, take it to, you know, the summit. Nice. He lives in Canberra, sounds take it to the summit cool. and they can just go cruising around. You know, yeah, and that's awesome. And that's where it's kind of, we're finding that, you know, that and maybe chipped to the same degree, you know, like the, the was it the dentist that owned the, the Mustang that went to Japan? Yeah. Yeah. Dr. Yeah. Honda. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, the, the, it's those types of things we're finding that it's less about, you know, building cars for awards, and it's more about just building good cars. And if they happen to go to an event and win the award, well, that's a bonus, but it's not the reason or the purpose. Um, and that's what you know we're really trying to dial that in and and uh, do that. So we've got that going on. Uh, we've got a meeting with uh, a longtime um, owner um, that we've been doing a car called, called uh, Retro Rocket, uh, which is a PT cruiser that's been chopped up to 500 pieces. Um, he wants um, a very uh, Art Deco uh, PT Cruiser that we're running. Um, it's running all uh, – we're 
Scratch building a frame for it, but it's running uh, torque tube, uh, transaxle, double wishbone Corvette rear suspension, double wishbone front suspension, uh, adapting a, a 2016 uh, Challenger engine to the um, torque tube, um, and you're sitting in it. Basically, it's it's going to be almost a reskinned Corvette, I suppose, when you look at it that way. Um, <laughs> And it's got like a four-inch chop, and it's there's no back seat. You know, you, I'm I'm pulling the screens around, like really screwing it around. But he wants it to look like a you know 1939, 1945, you know, conceptual um, Chrysler design package that may have been trying to go to market externally. And then internally, cabin-wise, it'll be very, very retro. Um, and I've used the the early Chrysler and the and the um, the uh, Aeroflow um, as influences. Um, so that's been my design brief to use those as influences. Um, so so he's coming in a couple of weeks to um, go back over, you know, the, the next step forward. So I'm excited to get involved in that. And we're also trying to get back onto uh, that Carmen Gear project called Carmen Geddon, um, which is greatest name ever, <laughs> by the way. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. and um, it's it's designed kind of well, very early in the piece. Chippy did a a little sketch for me over the um, when he's allowed to <laughs> um, did a sketch for me over a phone call through the fax machine, and we've just rehashed that a little bit within the roof line. But it, it was at the same time he was doing impressions and he kept on saying that, um, you know, he liked that we were taking it to that sort of that French side of design for that period. Um, so it's all, you know, very much like impressions when it comes to the screen post, the hood, removable hard lid, all custom-made brightware, um, and it's running all um, uh, C6 Corvette you know, engine torque tube, transaxle, and the, bo the body the body is quite physically, so a Carmen Gear body uh, that we've scratch built um, from flat sheet. Um, it's about uh, the physical size of about a C6 Corvette. Oh, cool. So it's been really hard because it's not an easy car to move around because of the tapering of that egg-shaped body um, and being widened and stuff as well, but it's going to be a really cool thing done. So, um, and then see... That car between French and probably even um, I get a, a bit of vintage influence from uh, what Pinky's been doing because mm -hmm. I really like like Pinky's angle um, on a lot of that early vintage stuff. Um, so and even Rob Ida, you know, I use those guys as as influences and stuff. So um, so what I find that you know what we've set, what I've tried to do from day one is to try and take all these different influences but hash it into having you know what I call our own flavor um, and I and I think we've got a particular flavor about the way we do things um, but it's um it's 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 a tough gig sometimes because you're almost giving yourself some rules yeah but yeah you guys are doing some great stuff though and it sounds like you got some cool projects that's um, I'm, I'm super excited excited for you that's awesome take this for what it's worth this would be great speaking of French design and late model this this one's either going to put you on the map or completely put the final nail in a coffin for for ziggy's design driven ever hopefully it's not the latter but here's what you do we do a hyundai sonata with a serious french coach bill thing and think about this if you did the della hyundai 
<laughs> oh gosh. <laughs> well, okay. How, how about we do that? We'd actually take it to the Moon Eye Show, though. <laughs> I, I'm already seeing him laying claims to intellectual property, so we should probably end the conversation at that point. He's <laughs> he's gonna have a contract in your in your mailbox tomorrow, Ziggy. <laughs> You're like a pontoon yeah, fendered Hyundai. <laughs> And it so it was like when we when we, we did that um, when we did that Mustang Warhorse, um, it was like I'd never ever done a Mustang before, and I saw a lot of Mustangs that didn't overly interest me. Um, I wasn't a you know mad Shelby guy or anything like that. And what I found is I just kept on finding you know all different models that bits and pieces I liked it. So we tried to morph all of that together, and that whole process was to come up with something that might have been, you know, Shelby did some cool stuff that went fast, but, you know, he really didn't use a stylist. We know that. So um, I was sort of pitching that, that if, if he employed a stylist, this might have been something that he would have brought to market. And um, and then we've still got the um, the plans for uh, the, the Zelby project, which is supposed to be the European um, sister or brother to Warhorse. We cool. just need to find a client. Nice. Hey, you got some fun stuff going. Wow, you're this, mm. is, a, this is exciting. Um, this has been cool. But it's always hard to get the clients in Australia to to spend the sort of depth that you know a lot of the builds in the US have. Um, and that's that's the hard part. Is probably um, you, can, you can build really cool stuff, but finding ways to funding them is is the hardest part. And that's the way all over the world. Like <laughs> just Australia, it's always yeah. about money. Yeah. I wonder. I wonder if we could make that. Not to take anything away from the American builders, but what if we could get one of our guys to uh, kind of make that like the in vogue thing to do? It's like, oh, you had your car built here. Well, I sent mine to Australia. We'll see. Well, you're already thirty percent in front. So that's. I'd love. I'd love nothing more than to find. An American customer that wanted us to build something special for America. Well, I, I tell you, I have this ongoing thing in my head that if I come into some money on my <laughs> short list of things, I've always been like, it, there's going to be a Ziggy car somewhere in that fleet. <laughs> well, thank you. That's not a... <laughs> and I pray it's not going to be the Della Hyundai. Now, I want, that, that's a car I picture somebody like Alex to drive. <laughs> yeah, I'd drive it. <laughs> But I can't, I can't thank you enough, and just just for spending your day with us, and and I would love to, I want to talk with you a little bit more off air, maybe even work out a thing where if it's possible to kind of tag with you for a couple minutes at SEMA this year, and just get a little bit of your viewpoint on a couple of cars. Yeah, sure. Yeah, yeah, that'd be that'd be good. Because I mean, essentially, it all just comes down to nuts and bolts. I mean, the, the guy that has the attention on nuts and bolts um, is the guy that wins. And, and that's pretty much I, you know, and, and you know, Troy, Chip, um, guys in that league, um, I think, um, you know, kind of get it. And it's, I used to spend a lot of time in the early days judging. Um, and after, you know, the awards we were given out, always made ourselves available to consult with the guys that had questions, you know, because that's half the battle is knowing, you know, where you didn't win or where you can improve or whatever. 
and you'd, you'd always be, you know, sort of super polite about it as much as you could. And they'd go from show to show and they wouldn't listen, wouldn't listen, wouldn't listen. And there'd be no different and they'd still be complaining. And and that's where sort of I, I kind of got frustrated by um, the whole process because it was more important about winning the trophy than to me, you know, the trophy is actually building the car. You know, that's that's the trophy for us. Um, you know, I'm not I'm not geared by how many trophies or awards or whatever you can win. They're, they're nice to have, but it's not the reason for building a nice piece or a nice car. Um, and that's where um, by consulting and talking with a lot of the owners over the years uh, at the SEMA level, um, not only have I learned a lot um, through the process of their builds, but I've also have tried to, you know, pitch them and think about this or, 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 you know, at least think about other things outside that circle. Um, and it only makes them better builders. And, and it was one of the guys that, you know, I was really thankful to be part of. Um, there's a guy <clears throat> that came to Sam many years ago with a, a, um, a Mack truck that had a Dodge engine in it. Right. And it was it was out. The, it was going to be right in the furthest, dingiest corner that there was. And and thankfully, you know, we got Seema to give him a little bit better placement. And then from that, he got a couple of other builds out of it. Anyway, he was involved in the in the silver fifty seven um, that won the Riddler last year. And um, and he came to Seema and stuff. So every year after after judging and stuff at the Shine Award, he would come up and he'd just ask questions about the cars, you know, in the group, you know, what what I liked and lots of stuff. And and he's he had learnt a lot over the process, but not that, you know, it was all my doing. It was just giving a bit of guidance as to where to consider. And he's taken his talent and his ability and, and he stepped it up and, and now, you know, like I said to him, you know, you you, you be thankful that you, you were one of the guys on the team that had a Riddler winner. You know, not many people can say that. Well, I tell you, Ziggy, for me, this whole conversation has been great to get your perspective on car culture as as based in the United States and what's moved to the, Australia. The second mm -hmm. point is what's specific to Australia and what's happening there. And then the third is just things in general. It's it's really eye-opening. It's it's fresh perspective. I mean, I've I've really enjoyed this. This has been great. Yeah, I think you really appreciate that. Yeah, I'm just very thankful. But yeah, I've got, you know, been around a long time. I I, I, I have the passion for it all. Um, and um, and as I say, you know, I've, I've been lucky. I've been mentored by probably the best people in the industry over the years. Yeah, that's awesome. And thank you for sharing that with us. I. It has been an absolute honor to have you on, and I, I would love to, if, if you've got time, I would love to have you on more and more, and well, eventually we'll just make it the Ziggy podcast. <laughs> well, thank you, thank you for taking, I mean, this was, this was an odd one, because it's Saturday, it's, it's yeah. 8, you know, 8.30 on a Saturday for us, and it's Sunday, it's Sunday lunchtime for you, it's actually after lunch, so you probably missed lunch talking to us, and uh, so that's a little weird, but Thank you for, for taking your Sunday to talk to us. That, that's my, been wonderful. My pleasure. It's been a really good bench session, I reckon. Yeah. Hey, it's been phenomenal. I, I, your, your input, like I said, and A, just having you on as a builder, B, again, that, that the international angle for this is, is completely fresh. I think this is an awesome thing to have. 
And man, I, I cannot thank you enough, sir. It is it has been an honor to have you on. It is one of my one of my heroes in the industry. It, it's great to have you on and talk to you. Well, thank you very much. But if it means anything, we can we can have a um, uh, a love fest, and um, because Brian, <laughs> I, I absolutely Brian, I absolutely love what you do. You have the, the most fresh design aptitude out there, and I think I said to Brad the other day that you know I put you whew, just behind Chippy as one of the big influences of design of our culture. Wow. Wow, I, <laughs> I, I, I've been watching your stuff you. for a bloody long time. <laughs> thank you so much. <laughs> and I'm really looking forward that somehow, somewhere along the line, we get to work together. I would love that. I would like would nothing cool. more than that. And I promise you it won't be a Sonata with pontoon fenders. <laughs> <laughs> Unless that's what but you're yes. into, man. I'm... <laughs> Well, and the you. Carson, it was absolute boast to have Carson on board as well. Um, thanks, team. It's just been an absolute hoot. Yeah, glad to join in. I mean, I'm glad I made it home in time to get this going. I mean, I was racing down the freeway from Carlsbad, uh, but it worked out. It worked out great, and the guys held for a little while for me. So thanks, guys, for waiting for yeah. me to come in. Come in late. Nah, you were Always. great having you on, man. We've, we've, we've awesome. got money invested in you now in a microphone, man. We got no option. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We need that payback. <laughs> You're obligated now, man. You better be driving home fast. <laughs> yep. Yep. Excuse me. This yeah. is yeah. Sally. Did yeah, he Sally. talk too much because he talks a lot? <laughs> he I did good. I got Sally. I got news for you. Because he, I said to him before this started, I said, "Don't you rattle on?" Because he does rattle on. He's very enthusiastic. I don't mean that in a derogatory way. Anybody will tell you I talk way longer than him. And he just doesn't know when to stop. No, that's that's why we wanted him on. He is he is passionate and and thank you for sharing him with us. Oh no no, he's at work. I've just called him to see him. He's a workaholic. He might as well live here actually, but that's another story. (laughs) He loves his workshop. He's got a very nice workshop and he's always here. It drives me bananas, but that's fine. And I've listened to your podcasts, and they're amazing. So that's my two cents worth. Fabulous. Oh, thank you so much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. You know, we'll have you on. I, I want to do a series of podcasts where we talk to the women behind the guests. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you what, if you could get Sally on because Sally's actually got some depth too. All right. So Sally lived in the States for a while. Sally used to work for... Fat Jack? No oh, way. Wow. Okay. And man, could she tell you some stories about oh, Jack? <laughs> Let's do um, this then. You, you, yeah. and, and her yes. ex-husband had an FJ Holden that came over to America and actually went on the circuit and was very successful. Was that wow. the, I want to say purple colored? No, blue. Yeah. Okay. Blue. Oh, blue. Yeah. Jeez, that's, okay. Yeah. Yeah, so um, so she, you know, she understood. Like, she, that's only reason we, you know, stay together. <laughs> um, we, uh, we, we, Sally gets it, and and Sally's uh, got horses and stuff, and you know, she's probably, you know, the 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 boycotting of the chip fruits in the horse world in Australia. And she's the queen of lead and feed, and now she's the queen of French bulldogs. Um, so so um, you know, she's passionate about that part of it, so she understands my passion and we sort of met each other in the middle when we got time. That's fantastic. See that yeah. and that's the thing nobody talks about. 
that, that familial support that you need. You need that support network to kind of go after your passion, no matter what it is. Yeah, and it's just, it doesn't work. You know, it just, it really doesn't work otherwise. And I'm glad that you have that. That makes mm. my day, you know, and it, plus, plus it makes, you know, it helps to make you who you are. So we all get to enjoy it. This is, <laughs> so thanks, yes. Sally. We all took something out of this. <laughs> so you'll be interviewed soon too, though. Oh, cool. That'd be so cool. <laughs> <laughs> so are we, are we still recording or are we off air or what? We're, we're, we're recording this. We're going to wind it down and, and, and give you a big thank you. And then, uh, yeah, that's, that's how it works, man. I, I, again, thank you. Thank you for your time today, man. Yeah, thanks, Ziggy, for indulging yeah. my deep knowledge <laughs> on the Jocko thing. Sorry, I'm geeking out, but that was just too cool. Yeah, so we and apologize if Carson yeah. got on your nerves, but yeah. he was he was dying to talk about the uh, the Jocko car. Yeah. Well, yeah. That's, all, that's all right, Carson. You, you get it to pebble in some other places. You can geek all to your heart's content. Well, I'm going to demand some seat time for burnout. Oh, for yeah. <laughs> I'm going to propose something offline regarding that. But, uh, Perfect. Well, awesome. Thank you. So thanks, team. It was an absolute hoot. Thank you very much. Yeah, great. Awesome. Can't wait to have great you back, insight. my friend. Great insight. Well, I don't, I don't even know how to <laughs> close it up. It's, uh, that was an, an amazing, amazing episode. Um. Is there anything we didn't cover, guys? <laughs> wow. <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, it was one of those, you know, I'm a host, but I was also, be I became a listener because that guy just had some great things to say. <clears throat> you know, you don't want, you don't interrupt any of it because it's just, it had such a great flow to it. So I really enjoyed this one. So for your, your thing, you could literally be, hi, I'm Alex, a uh, long time host, first time listener. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, no kidding. Yeah. Freaking. I love the fact that we went international like this. I and mean, we've we've gone Canadian before. Mm -hmm. we've, uh, yeah, we've never gone this far south. And um, yeah. Yeah. we're long overdue doing this. Yeah. So, Brad, even, uh, even you did kind of what I did for a while. I just sat back and went, I'm going to sit here and learn. Yeah. Yeah. It was fun. And, dude, you got, you got an amazing compliment. <laughs> My my whole <laughs> career was vindicated in that uh, moment. <laughs> it's like, dude, I was loving it. Like, wow, that's so cool. That is awesome. I flat out, dude. I don't. I'm not gonna come down from that for about a month and a half. You don't have to. It's gonna make walking around SEMA really easy. I'm just gonna be floating around. <laughs> guys could just tether me by my just belt. Gotta, yeah, just drag him. Or just, just come on and grab his foot. Let's go. <laughs> I like usually Macy's has cute balloons. What happened this year? Yeah, <laughs> this isn't Macy's. Kids. <laughs> Dude, I've waited a long time to have Ziggy on, and then doubling down to have Carson on was mm -hmm. so awesome. Yeah, I called. I called Carson. I was heading home. I was like trying to get that thing picked up, and like I gotta go. I gotta go. I gotta go. So you're texting. I was trying to get all my stuff done, and I was texting, you know, Ziggy, and I was like, "Dude, I'm. I just got home, and it was like right at six o'clock." And he goes, "It's okay. It's like I gotta feed my dogs, and I'm. I'm like going 100 mile an hour, going son of a. So uh, he's like, "It's okay." About it's all like, oh, shit. oh no! So I was texting him, and finally, I was like, "Okay, I. Uh, okay." So finally, get, you know, got my got my crap set up here, and uh, yeah, it worked out. It was it, it was out. so. Then I had, I would called Carson on the way home when I left there. It was like you know five thirty. I went, hey, 
uh, you can be able to come on tonight. And he goes, man, we're just getting back from a baseball game and, and I'm not going to get home till like six 30 and then, and then, and then it's like, it's like, okay, well, you know, I just figured I would ask again. He goes, guy, cause I want to talk about that Jocko car. And, I, and it's like, it's all good, man. So we're talking, we're just kind of doing the whole green room thing. And my phone's blowing up. He's like, man, I'm home and I'm set up. Can I be on? Is it too late? <laughs> like, no, hold on. <laughs> and and be, I'd be remiss if we didn't say, uh, dude, for all the behind-the-scenes stuff that you do every week to make this happen, man, thank you. Oh, you're very welcome. Yeah, yeah. yeah definitely. You're very A lot welcome. of work into this thing. And uh, again, you know, we're not going to pat pat ourselves on the back, but both, both you guys, man, you do a lot of great work. Alex puts in the research. You're plugging away, making, you know, a lot of the guest stuff happen and uh i just i show up and um i get a fucking kick-ass compliment so <laughs> dude you got a kick-ass compliment yeah this is a long episode and if you've hung in here this far thank you for listening thanks for the support um, i hope you dig what we're doing and i think uh i think this one brought a lot of value to the table mm-hmm. yes absolutely i guess at the end of this episode man I, I, I'm, I don't know, dude, I don't know how to put this here. I'm as energetic as a, uh, a kangaroo on crack right now after that, um, <laughs> that compliments. <laughs> I'm a very bouncy Brian. Ooh. Wow. A bouncy Brian. And not just because of my dad bod. And I am a, uh, after tonight, I am a well-traveled Brad. Hmm. I guess that's up to me now, huh? I got nothing. I'm still Alex. Just like I said before, I, I loved listening to this episode. It was phenomenal. Long time host, first time listener. That's it. First time. Yeah. Long time host. <laughs> first time, long time. <laughs> it's the first time I've ever listened to us. We're not bad. <laughs> All right, guys. Well, hey, thank you. And uh, we'll catch you guys uh, next time. See you. Out. Thanks again for listening, and be sure to keep up with us gearheads over on our website at www.round6pod.com. And if you'd like to, we invite you to follow along with us over on Facebook, Instagram, and be sure to check out all of our latest videos on youtube.com. Big thanks once again to our sponsor, Trailer Tug. Please visit them at trailertug.com and learn more about the world's strongest trailer dolly. Our listeners receive 10% off their order when they use the discount code ROUND6 at checkout or when calling their order in 